there's a comfort that comes from knowing the Holy Spirit that can't be produced uh, by anything else. It can't be um, self-manufactured. One of the things that uh, was said yesterday in that memorial service, the pastor was talking about going to visit uh, our friend before she <coughs> passed away. And um, he, he didn't know them that well. He's a new pastor. So he said he was concerned about making sure that she understood the reality uh, that she was going to die. And he, he asked her, basically, do you understand? And he said she uh, got very somber, didn't cry or anything. And she said, I do, and I'm not afraid. And she said, I'm not worried about my husband. He can cook and do laundry. She said, my only concern is I don't want my boys to grow up with misplaced bitterness toward God. Because it seems the Holy Spirit gave her uh, some comfort and some perspective of His truth that no matter how incapable we are of understanding circumstances, He still comforts. His name... He's referred to in Scripture, the Spirit of God, as the Comforter, the Advocate. And this is what I'm going to try to preach about today, is the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to read, I'll read a few verses, but I want to read a verse from Acts chapter 1, verse 4 to begin with. And as you're turning there, as, as, as I'm getting ready to try to bring this message, I want to say to everyone and to anybody listening, if you don't know that kind of comfort, if you couldn't make it to the end of your life, be faced with certain death and say, I'm not worried about myself, I'm more concerned that the people I leave behind understand God's true character. If you don't know what that's like, as I preach, as you listen to this message or to this recording later, I want you to know that you can know God, you can have that kind of peace, you can have that kind of certainty that the afterlife will be okay for you. And the way you obtain that is, the religious word is called repenting. What it means is recognizing that you are lacking something in yourself, that there's something you can't produce, that you're missing something and you go to God and you, you just throw all of your hopes on Him and beg Him to have mercy. And He will. Scripture says this plainly, God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. There's a misunderstanding, a false theology among religion today, including uh, this denomination, that overemphasizes the grace of God and completely neglects the obedience of man. You have been commanded to repent. Period. You don't have to wait on God to repent for you. He will never repent for you. Jesus Christ died to make atonement for sin, but He cannot do your repenting for you. That is a, a gross misunderstanding of uh, the truth of Scripture that is as usually happens, an opposite extreme of something that some religious people identified and said, we're not that, so let's go way over here. 
Salvation is holy of grace, but you can never obtain salvation without repenting, and you've been commanded to repent. And you don't have to wait for a revival or for some special uh, light in the sky or some... All these things people talk about that's just silly. You're commanded to repent. And when you recognize that you're a sinner, when you recognize in your heart, no matter how old you are, that there's somebody so much bigger than you who's not like you, you are commanded to repent. Period. It doesn't matter how you feel. You don't have to be inspired to repent. You're commanded to. Now, will the Holy Spirit help? Absolutely. He helps. I want you to remember that as I try to preach. You can have peace with God. It comes through repenting. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. This is speaking of Jesus being assembled with His disciples. And it says, Being assembled together with them, He commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which He told them, You have heard of Me. For when John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me or of me, both in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel and said unto them, You men of Galilee, why are you standing gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken up into heaven from you shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. Then they returned into Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, Judas, the brother of James, all lived. And these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his Brethren, what is going on here? Jesus has lived with these disciples. He's been walking with them for about three years. Every day they've been hanging on to His every word and trying to understand His truths and being confounded by His teachings and having their religious minds completely blown. Day after day after day. And there comes a time near the end of His life when He starts to tell them, I am going away but it'll be good for you. 
I want to read a few of those verses just, just to remind us. John 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whosoever trusts upon me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who had trusted in him were yet to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He told them, recorded in John 14, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. He told them in John 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the advocate, the comforter will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then he told them, and this is recorded in Luke 24, he said, Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I don't know if we can imagine, but I want us to try to put ourselves in their positions. Could you imagine growing up in a religious culture that's all about rules and regulations, that's all about the letter of the law, that you have such determined um, specificity that you have to worry about whether you're allowed to grab some grain off of a wheat stalk as you're walking through a field on, on the Sabbath. They're always worried about violating some aspect of the law that they aren't even sure if they could keep in the first place. Imagine that. Imagine that you've been waiting. There was a silent period of 400 years, but before that, all of the history of the law of Moses, the prophets of Jesus Christ, all the way back to Abraham, God has promised that He is going to provide something that the people can't imagine which is going to be fulfilled in the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through a man, Jesus Christ. And they've been waiting. They don't know his name yet. They've been waiting for the Messiah. They've been waiting for the Deliverer, the salvation of Israel, for as long as their race can remember. Waiting. And then finally, here is baby Jesus. He's born according to God's divine purpose and plan. They take him to the temple for um, consecration, basically. And Simeon takes him up in his arms. And he waited his whole life. And before I say what he said, you think about the idea of what your life is worth, what you're doing with it, what the purpose of it is, and whether when you get to the end you will regret all those years. That man spent his life waiting to see the Messiah. And when he saw him, he said, Now, Lord, you can let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen the salvation of Israel. He knew when he saw Jesus 
the baby, the Spirit of God witnessed it to him, that his entire life waiting was well spent. He probably didn't live a, a whole lot longer after that. We don't know for sure. But surely he never got to see the earthly ministry of Jesus. He never got to see with his eyes the product of the fulfillment of God's promise once the Messiah grew and became the man he was. And yet he knew through spiritual eyes that he had seen what he'd waited for his whole life. Solomon confirmed that in a very different way. He spent as much of his life doing stupid things, foolish activities, chasing women, chasing fame, chasing power, chasing sensuality. And when he got to the end of his life, he said, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for that is the whole duty of man. Simeon knew intuitively through the revelation of God's Spirit that the whole purpose of his life was to wait for the Messiah. Solomon experienced through the foolishness of the flesh the opposite and made the same conclusion. The whole purpose of life is to fear God and keep His commandments. That's it. I keep preaching and keep saying lately that we don't need better methods, we need better men and better women. And a better man, what I'm talking about, is not somebody who necessarily walks straighter or wears nicer clothes or uses finer speech, although those things can be okay. I'm talking about a man who recognizes what Simeon knew and what Solomon learned, that nothing else matters. This is what Jesus was trying to prepare his, his followers for, a future that they could not imagine. They've been waiting forever for Him. He's finally come and they finally accept in their minds that this is the Messiah. He looks different than we planned. He's not like we imagined. He didn't ride in on a white war horse. He rode in on a donkey. But the little children cried out, Hosanna. They knew who He was. And here is this man, the Deliverer. David reincarnated. I don't mean that literally. That's their perspective. And that is their understanding because when he tells them that he's going to go away, a comforter's going to come and help them, they say, are you going to give us the kingdom of Israel now? They don't get it. They don't understand what Moses understood. When he said, Lord, I do not want your blessings without your presence. Jesus tells them the whole future, the whole world as you know it, everything you know is going to be completely different. He tries to prepare them, and this is how he does it. He says, when I leave, I'm telling you this now for two reasons. I'm telling you to prepare you, but I'm also telling you so that when it happens, you will know that I'm who I say I am. And then he says, once I do leave, your job is to wait. Wait in the city until you're empowered with the Holy Spirit. He also tells them this, which there's no way they could understand. He says, what you've experienced walking with me, seeing my miracles, knowing me in the flesh, touching me, being around me, smelling me, looking at me. What you've experienced, when I leave, you're going to have something better. 
What could be better than the incarnate God in human flesh in front of you? Jesus taught them, and Scripture teaches us all through, that what's even better than that is the indwelling presence of God within you. Even better than the Messiah walking among you is God Himself living inside of you through the Spirit of Jesus. There's no way they could understand, but it was still true. So they did what He told them. They went back where all the apostles were, the followers of Jesus. There were about 120 of them. And I want us to consider this for a few minutes. What was the posture of these followers of Christ while they were waiting for His eternal promise to be fulfilled? What were they doing? What were they talking about? What were they spending their time on? What were they worried about? And this promise that they were waiting on was a promise that goes all the way back. I will write my law in their hearts. They were waiting to be made internally, inside, into the image of the Jesus who had walked among them in flesh. And they never experienced in their own selves the kind of power that Jesus promised them that they would have. If you read 14th verse, once again, these all, this, is, this is the answer to the question I asked. How were they waiting? What were they doing? Or let, let me put it in modern language. How were they living? In light of the promise of God and in light of recognizing that everything they knew was about to change, how were they living? Listen to this, 14th verse. All of these continued with one accord in prayer, in supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. We know this went on a while because the next verse says, In those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and he preaches that famous sermon. That's all they cared about. This one accord is the kind of unity that precedes the manifestation of the power of the Spirit among God's people. Do you understand that? We have a mistaken idea now and in religion that unity is biting your tongue, going along to get along, not hurting your brother's feelings. That's not what it is. Being united in one mind and one accord is everybody coming together in their heart wanting the same exact thing. And not until they came into that... This is where I talked in the beginning of the message. There are things that are in the domain of God. There are things that God must do that you cannot do. And there are things you must do that God will not do for you. Jesus commanded them to wait on Him. He wasn't going to do it for them. He was gone. And the way they waited shows that they, 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 they took it in. And they applied it. And they began to be obedient to what he commanded. And once they had this one accord, the Spirit of the Lord, he came, empowered them in a way that changed the entire world. Uh, The way this word, uh, they continued, the, the translation, the Greek word can be translated different ways. Continued steadfastly is what you usually see. 
or persevered or were completely given to. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ was birthed and grew in power that was produced by prayer. They continued steadfastly in prayer. This word is the type of prayer, uh, prosuke. It can be praying earnestly or it can be a chapel oratory or um, prayer as we think of it. I, I would say, this, this is the way I interpret it, that this word is prayer proper. They continued in prayer. They were praying the kind of prayer that we're used to in public. That prayer is based on recognizing who God is and giving Him praise for who He is. They were doing that because God deserves it. That kind of prayer comes from a sense of duty. We worship God because He deserves it, not just so it will make us feel better. And they were obedient to the command of Jesus in worshiping in that manner. This has the same root idea that we get the word proskuneo, which is worship, which is prostrate yourself before God. It's got the same root built in. And so it's a focus on who God is. And the second part of the prayer that they were praying is translated supplication. And this is the type of prayer that springs from the awareness of personal lack. This is the kind of prayer that comes from desperation. This is the kind of prayer you pray, not when you're in public with your church face recognizing God because you're supposed to, but when you're totally broken. This is what we call now these days ugly crying. When you get to that point, they did both. They came together and worshiped God through prayer because He alone deserved it. And they came together at the same time aware of their desperate need for the power of God. Jesus said, wait. And they waited by pouring out their desperation before the Father. I, let, let, let me show you how they were probably praying. We see this in the fourth chapter of Acts. And it's very different than how church people usually pray today in public. Acts chapter 4. To give us a context, Peter and John have been in prison, afraid for their lives. They say in the 20th verse, we can't do anything but speak the things which we've seen and heard. So when they further threaten them, they let them go, finding no way that they could punish them because of the people, because all the people were glorifying God because of what had been done. For this man that was healed was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. And being let go, they went to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. They basically said they were going to get us. This is how the people prayed, and this is the way they were praying when Pentecost came, and the Spirit of God empowered them in that upper room. When they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord, let me pause there and say, this is the main difference in the way they were praying and the, the, the approach that religious people take today. They come to their congregation, they present a problem. You know what we would do? There'd be one person over here talking about a fundraising campaign. There'd be one person over here talking about a marketing strategy. There'd be one person over here doing some type of counseling based on modern psychology. That's not what they did. 
They went straight to the Lord with the first kind of prayer that I talked about, which is recognizing God for who He is, and then with the second kind of prayer that's translated supplication, which is recognizing their own desperation and need for God's provision. And all of them felt that way. When they heard this, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, this is the first part, the prayer of recognizing God. You are God who has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of your servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine empty things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. Wait a minute. This is so alien to our way of thinking. These people come with a practical problem and they go pray and they start talking about how great God is and quoting old scriptures and why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain... Because they understood, because they learned this when the Holy Spirit empowered them, that they had no power, no effect, no capability unless it was rooted and grounded in the power of God. And that power is rooted in a fear of who God is. Knowing what He can do. And they remember this. All the nations of the earth can rage against God and He's still God. For of a truth, 27th verse, against your holy child Jesus, whom you have anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, the people of Israel, were gathered together in order to do whatsoever your hand and your counsel determined ahead of time to be done. That's faith. Nothing's going to happen, Lord, unless you allow it. So we have nothing to worry about. And now, Lord, behold... Now, here's where they get to their supplication, their personal desperate need. Now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto your servants with all boldness that they may speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and the signs and wonders may be done by the name of your holy child, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They spoke the word of God with boldness. The effectiveness of the Lord's church has always been directly proportional to her power with Him in prayer. Or, let me put it differently. True power in prayer produces true power with God. There's no shortcut. There's no substitute. There's no better method. There's no technique. True personal communion with God is what produces authentic public worship before God. That's it. And I've been trying to preach to us, myself first, as as Brother Bob says. That's how preaching often is. Usually you get to preach to yourself at least twice. While you're preparing, the Holy Spirit's preaching to you. Then you get up to preach to the people and you preach to yourself again. Because we're incomplete and imperfect. And as one preacher said, the message that we preach is better than we are. Don't ever forget that. I proclaim the truth of the gospel because it's true, because it's the Lord Jesus Christ, not because I've arrived or done everything that I preach. This time we live in, 
Similarly to when the disciples were walking with Jesus, and he says the future is going to be completely different, unlike anything you've experienced, but it's going to be better. This time we live in right now, I'm telling you, and I keep telling you because it's in my heart, the future we're going into is different than anything you've experienced. Never been more certain of anything else as, as far as knowing the, the future. Now, I don't know what that means. But I know this. We're going into a time where a veneer of religion isn't going to work anymore. Where mere religious rituals, it's not enough. Where this culture we live in that we're supposed to be reaching because we're commanded to, not because we have to feel a fluffy feeling that makes us want to. We're commanded to reach the world. And the world that we're trying to reach sees through all the religious phonies in this of the past few decades, which is a very good opportunity. It's also terrifying. But that's why God keeps putting on my heart to preach that what we need is an internal transformation into the image of Jesus Christ more than a change in method, tactics, or outward physical manifestation of anything. Uh, The only way for us to see what we desire and what we claim we want and I think what intuitively we know is the right thing because God has imprinted this stamp inside of us when He says, I'll write my law in your hearts. It's not just the law, it's an understanding of His nature. And when God saves you, He puts this internal stamp inside of you that understands His nature and things that don't line up with it, although you may not understand in your mind, you recognize that there's something off. That's why not only myself, but many people I've talked to have gone to so many church services in recent years and are so troubled by what's going on. It feels empty. It feels like a shell. It feels like a veneer. It feels like the people who claim to be the church of Jesus are no longer empowered by God. I want to read a few things and then I'm going to close with a different scripture. I'll take, I'm going to take a few minutes. This is, this is worth it. This is something that uh, A.W. Tozer wrote. I want you to listen. The greatest event in history was the coming of Jesus Christ into the world to live and to die for mankind. The next greatest event was the going forth of His church to embody the life of Christ and to spread the knowledge of His salvation throughout the earth. Listen. It was not an easy task which the church faced when she came down from that upper room to carry on the work of a man who was known to have died and to have died as criminals die and more than that to persuade others that this man had risen again from the dead and that he was the Son of God and Savior. This mission was, in the nature of it, doomed to failure from the start. 
Who would credit such a fantastic story? Who would put faith in one whom society had condemned and crucified? Left to herself, the church must have perished as a thousand other sects had done before her and have left nothing for a future generation to remember. This is what Jesus told the people. You have to wait until you're empowered with the Holy Spirit or you cannot do what I've been talking about. Back to Tozer. That the church did not perish was due entirely to the miraculous element within her. That element was supplied by the Holy Spirit who came at Pentecost to empower her for the task. For the church was not an organization merely, not a movement, but a walking incarnation of spiritual energy. And she accomplished within a few brief years such prodigies of moral conquest as to leave us holy without an explanation apart from God. In short, the church began in power, moved in power, and moved just as long as she had power. When she no longer had power, she dug in for safety and sought to conserve her gains. But her blessings were like manna. When they tried to keep it overnight, it bred worms and stank. So we've had monasticism, scholasticism, institutionalism, and they've all been indicative of the same thing, absence of spiritual power. We're seeing the same thing in our culture now, a resurgence resurgence of doctrinal extremes that were held previously, like the reform movement, which I've talked about. People are trying to produce, through a type of mental uh, focus, something that only true spiritual energy can provide. In church history, every return to New Testament power has marked a new advance somewhere. A fresh proclamation of the gospel, an upsurge of zeal for the world, and every diminution of power has seen the rise of some new mechanism for conservation and defense. We have some of those mechanisms now. I'll tell you a couple. Not allowed to preach with notes. Can't use anything but King James. Those are mechanisms for conservation and defense that are invented by men and are preventing the true spread of spiritual power. If we are to advance, we must have power. Paganism is slowly closing in on the church and her only response is an occasional drive for one thing or another, usually money or a noisy but timid campaign to improve the morals of the movies. Such activities amount to little more than a slight twitching of the muscles of a drowsy giant too sleepy to care. These efforts sometimes reach the headlines, but they, can, but they accomplish little that is lasting and they're soon forgotten. The true congregation of God must have power, and she must become formidable, a moral force to be reckoned with if she would regain her lost position of spiritual ascendancy and make her message the revolutionizing, conquering thing it once was. Since power is a word of many uses and misuses, let me explain what I mean by it. First, I mean spiritual energy of sufficient voltage to produce great gains once again. 
That breed of mild, harmless Christian grown in our generation is but a poor sample of what the grace of God can do when it operates in power in a human heart. The emotionless act of accepting the Lord, practice among so many, bears little resemblance to the whirlwind conversions of the past. We need the power that transforms, that fills the soul with a sweet intoxication, that will make a former persecutor to be beside himself with the love of Christ. And we have today, listen, theological saints who can and must be proved to be saints by an appeal to the Greek original. We need saints whose lives proclaim their sainthood and do not need to run to the concordance for authentication. Secondly, I mean spiritual unction that will give a heavenly unction to our worship, that will make our meeting places sweet with divine presence. In such a holy place, showy sermons and streamlined personalities will be out of order. A very grief to the Holy Spirit and the emphasis will fall where it belongs upon the Lord himself and his message to mankind. I'll read one more thing that he said. The greatest proof of our weakness in these days is that there is no longer anything terrible or mysterious about us, the followers of Christ. The church has been explained the surest evidence of her fall. We now have little that cannot be accounted for by psychology and statistics. In that early church, they met together on Solomon's porch, and so great was the sense of God's presence that nobody around dared to unite himself with them. They were terrified. The same way that the Israelites were terrified of the quaking mountain where the presence of God was. The world saw fire in that bush and stood back in fear, but no one is afraid of ashes. Today they dare to come as close as they please. They even slap the professed bride of Christ on the back and get coarsely familiar. If we ever again impress unsaved men with a wholesome fear of the supernatural, we must have once more the dignity of the Holy Spirit. We must know again that awe-inspiring mystery which comes upon men and churches when they are full of the power of God. Everything else being equal, we shall have as much success in Christian work as we have power. No more and no less. Outward circumstances may hinder for a time, but nothing can long stand against the naked power of God. As well try to fight the jagged lightning as to oppose the power when it's released upon men. Then it will either save or destroy. It will give life or bring death. You shall receive power as God's promise and God's provision. The rest waits on us. So, what are we going to do about it? I've got about five more minutes. Uh, I'm going to finish with a verse from Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all, with open face, beholding, as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And the very next verse Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. There is a ministry. 
And I, I want to define that word because people think ministry is something that you go get trained to do, you go to seminary or you get ordained by a congregation, you make it your life's job and then maybe someday you retire. The word minister means to serve. And there is a foundational ministry, a service to God that every single child of God is responsible and privileged to partake in. That ministry is defined here, Paul says in the fourth chapter, first verse, we have this ministry. And the ministry he's talking about is the very previous verse, which is to behold the glory of the face of Jesus. What are we going to do about everything I keep preaching about over and over and over? Why are we here? What is the purpose? All of these questions that God keeps prompting us with foundationally start with a response to the ministry we were called to when He saved us, and that is to behold His glory. A couple other ways that verse is translated that might help you understand it. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. When is the last time you sat around for hours and just thought about God? I don't mean a busy activity. I don't mean studying some verses so you could get closer to your yearly reading plan. I don't mean reading a Sunday school lesson so your Sunday school teacher wouldn't have his feelings hurt. I mean, when's the last time we just sat there and contemplated God's goodness? Our enemy has created a culture where that is nearly impossible. And the only way it's possible, and this is the greatest challenge we face in this generation, is we have to intentionally, decisively, with discipline, remove ourselves from that busyness of the world and be willing to behold the face of Jesus. Until we do that, there will be no power and church will be almost pointless. Do you hear me? That is a call to every single individual who's saved. You can't rely on somebody else to do it for you. So all of us who have had this veil removed can see and reflect the glory of God. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. To help us understand this, the next chapter, 6 verse... God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What are you seeing when you behold the face of Jesus? The unfiltered, unveiled knowledge of God's glory. Jesus isn't here. What am I talking about? I'm not talking about looking at a picture or an icon or uh, painting, what we are talking about is communion and fellowship with the Holy Spirit. What I'm trying to preach to us today is what Jesus told His disciples, which you could put it this way, once I leave, you're going to know me even better than you did when I was here. Have you thought about that? The foundation of any effective spiritual work in the whole future that we're facing is this first ministry of the child of God to behold His glory. Until you learn to do that, 
until you experience that, your lives will be incomplete. You'll be restless. You'll be dissatisfied. You'll be depressed. You'll have no peace. You'll be unhappy. And I've experienced all of that by doing the opposite of what I'm preaching today. But when you behold the face of Jesus, it produces inside of you a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that nothing else can fill. And in comparison, fake church services seem what they are, fake. So, what an opportunity, what a privilege we have to behold the glory of God through the Holy Spirit in the face of Jesus Christ.